Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 414th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting across the world in this, our ninth year, from the beautiful remote island of Kermasui in southern Thailand. We're here visiting with, with the world's most famous art forger, Robert Dryson. Robert has forgeries of famous masters and Giacometti sculptures in the major galleries throughout the world. And since he was released from prison, he's been living on this wonderful remote island. And I'll have a big announcement to make when I get back to LA in about a week. Now, away from the noise, this month, the largest cryptocurrency quietly hit important new security milestones that you should pay close attention to. In considering Bitcoin's progress, often people attach great importance to recent price movements. That's understandable. We all look at them every day. However, this is the wrong way to go about it. Price isn't an indicator of network development or of future growth prospects. To fully appreciate where we are at on the adoption curve and what's next, it's better to assess the overall health of Bitcoin blockchain and the progress being made in the context of the protocol's overarching goals. Bitcoin is a decentralized payment network and it's a new kind of money. To succeed in achieving its mission of being the global reserve currency and a digital store of value, it needs to build trust, More important, most importantly. There's a reason people trust gold. It's been around for centuries, and the mere word inspires confidence among investors and traders. Many people buy gold as a hedge against inflation currency manipulations and the next economic downturn. People have been buying gold pretty strongly of late. Yet Bitcoin offers many advantages over gold. Important features such as fractional ownership, fast payments and censorship resistance allows it to stand out compared to gold. But being more useful is just not enough for Bitcoin to threaten gold's dominance as the global store of value. To become a true alternative, Bitcoin needs to become at least as trustworthy as gold. And establishing trust in the largest cryptocurrency is essential if we're going to drive the shift to Bitcoin as digital gold, if you will. In the payment space, trust is generated first and foremost through the security of the underlying payment rails. Therefore, the following milestone is especially important. This month's Bitcoin hash rate hit a new record high. Given that Bitcoin's hash rate is now 15 times higher compared to two years ago, this makes it exponentially more difficult for bad actors to hack into the protocol and gather the resources needed to conduct a 51% attack. So the faster the hack rate, the um, more difficult it is to attack. And the increased network security is also reflected in Bitcoin's record high mining difficulty adjustment set every 200, 2016 blocks. With Bitcoin becoming ever more secure, the difficulty target continues to soar to new heights. Now, as market turmoil looms large, economic uncertainty over a no-deal Brexit, the trade war between the US and China, rising tensions in Hong Kong, and the statement this morning uh, that um, Morgan Stanley predict a recession next year, the realisation that the most secure payment network in the world is going from strength to strength is very compelling. Finally, on the market size front, it's worth looking at Bitcoin's realised market cap. It broke $100 billion for the first time this month. 
Now, realized market cap is a metric introduced by coin metrics to more accurately measure Bitcoin's market size. And uh, so it broke the $100 billion level. So when assessing Bitcoin's progress, one should consider these important developments and the security metrics. It's becoming more and more secure and faster and faster transaction rate. Bitcoin's usability, clear monetary policy and increased hash rate means that it is very well positioned. To understand the long-term potential, ignore the latest price movements that fluctuate up a bit up and down every day. Bitcoin is much, much stronger than it was a year ago. In the future, Bitcoin could easily surpass gold as a leading store of value and ultimately become the trusted global reserve currency. The hard sound money revolution continues apace and it is unstoppable. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've now got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes mm, 30 seconds to 60 seconds to read, unless it's a really, really interesting topic, and that can go for 90 seconds. And every day we tackle a different subject. We talk about we talk about medicine, new advances. We talk about new apps, new technology, subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, all sorts of things. There's a lot of lot happening in the autonomous car space. We're in Vegas for the iHeart Music Conference at the weekend, and uh, you can get driver-free lifts. And uh, I must admit, none of the people that I was with was interested in getting into a driverless car, but um, wouldn't worry me, but they're out there and available. Now, the one media vehicle you can trust for the latest up-to-date business information is the Bob Pritchard Newsletter. And to receive it, simply go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. Now, there's been a massive growth in um, internet shopping. And with e-commerce becoming a lucrative shopping channel, retailers and their logistics partners have been primarily focused on how to quickly move goods through the supply chain and into the hands of consumers. You know, two-day delivery and then one-day delivery, and now we're hearing about two-hour delivery and one-hour delivery. It's getting faster and faster. This is called forward logistics. However, the opportunities presented by the growing popularity of e-commerce also comes with a challenging multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar downside, the rapidly increasing number of returns. Now, return rates for e-commerce purchases are between 25 and 35%. So 25 to 35% of all online purchases get returned. In-store purchases, it's about 9%. So there's three times more returns from online purchases. So turning reverse logistics, the process of returning the goods from the end user back to their origins, this is now a costly and high stakes matter for retailers. Not only are retailers experiencing more returns as a matter of e-commerce growth, but consumer expectations also demand that retailers provide a seamless process. In fact, 92% of consumers agree that they're more likely to shop at a store again if it offers a hassle-free return policy. Example, giving you free return shipping labels. Some consumers even place large orders with the intention of returning most of the items. A lot of, that, a lot of the um, online stores now have got, have got really good. You, you simply stick the return label on the, on the package and take it down to the local UPS and they will return it. And I think that's, it's simple and it's, it's just brilliant. So you just put it back in the box that came in, stick the return label on it, take it down to UPS, and off it goes. And e-commerce sales are only going to continue to increase, exacerbating the issue and making retailers' need for help much more dire. However, for logistics firms that can offer cost-effective reverse solutions, 
this has opened up a significant opportunity to capture a share of this rapidly growing market. The market for return, logistics returns from e-commerce sales hit $117 billion last year, $117 billion in returns. That is unbelievable. And reverse logistics are so much more challenging than forward logistics, and consumer trends have driven retailers to finally improve the way in which returns move through the supply chains and how logistics firms can act to win over the retailer's return dollars. E-commerce is a core shipping shopping channel for retailers, and it's still growing. E-commerce sales are set to increase at a compound annual growth rate of 14% in the next five years, surpassing $1 trillion in sales. And booming e-commerce sales have driven product returns through the roof. And uh, returns are increasing at 19% a year. So (laughs) sales are increasing at 14% and returns are increasing at 19%. So it'll be $300 billion in five years. Now, consumers have got high expectations about how returns are handled, and retailers are struggling to find cost-effective ways to meet their demands. 64% of shoppers stated they would be hesitant to shop at a retailer if they had issues with returns. Wow. And most retailers don't have the expertise to effectively keep up with how demanding Consumers are about returns. 44% of retailers said their margins were too small to have a great return policy. That's a worry. So reverse logistics solutions, they present a huge opportunity, a very lucrative opportunity, but they're also appealing in the um, potential inroads as they supply supply chain management. It's extremely difficult. The global third-party logistics market is estimated to be valued at $865 billion in 2018. That's return goods, $865 billion. That's bigger than the GDP of a whole bunch of countries. Now, Natalie Koo is the founder and director of Avion Communications. And this is a content agency in Melbourne, Australia. And the reason it came to my attention, and uh, not just because I'm Australian, I've lived in Los Angeles for 32 years, so I I don't sort of think of myself as an Australian anymore. But um, what appealed to me about this story is that she started a business as a sole operator in 2009, and now 10 years later, she's got 15 people in her office, and she's expanding into the United States, opening an office in Austin, Texas. And today, despite that phenomenal growth and expansion, she still owns 100% equity in her business. That's a great effort. This is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with my guest, Natalie Koo, in just a moment. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. It seems ridiculous, but for the last nine and a half years, we've been doing this show, and we've given you insight into the lives of nearly 400 of the world's most interesting and successful business leaders and lots of new entrepreneurs. We've spoken about their exciting initiatives. We've found out what it is that makes them tick, hopefully, the challenges that they've faced. And what we try to do is get behind the mask because the last figures that I got only a couple of weeks ago was that 98 Eight and a half percent of all startup businesses fail. So only what's that? <laughs> One and a half in every hundred succeed. So what is it that the entrepreneurs and the business leaders that we speak to do that the other ninety-eight percent don't do? I'm speaking today with Natalie Koo, and she's got a fantastic track record. She's the founder and director of Evion Communications, which is a content agency in Melbourne, Australia, which is my hometown, a long, long time ago, but my hometown. And her, um, she's got a team of 15, and she started off as a sole practitioner 10 years ago. So she's gone from one to 15 in 10 years, and they specialize in content strategy and copywriting for complex digital projects, such as large websites through to chatbot scripts. Natalie started her business, as I said, sole operator, and now she is expanding into the United States, opening an office in Austin, Texas, early next year. And the incredible thing is that this company has grown so rapidly and yet she still owns 100% equity in the business, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'm sure she'll she'll enjoy doing business in the United States. I must admit that it is so much easier to do business here than it is to do in Australia. It's, um, it, it's actually quite hard and it's very difficult to be very successful. So hi, Natalie. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard right around the world. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So how did you get started in the communications business? Um, well, I can tell you a bit about myself, okay. uh, starting from when I was quite young. I've always had a fascination with um, the media and communications industry, and I used to, you know, when I was much younger, I would flick through magazines and think they were super cool, and I thought to myself, oh, you know, I wanted to, to work in a magazine one day, and so after studying media communications and dabbling in tons of work experience, I've always been really hungry to get practical work. Mm. Um, I worked full-time for a publishing company straight out of uni. Um, and that was such a great experience. And um, what ended up happening, though, was that I still have always been a real traveler at heart. And um, I decided to take a couple of years off after getting some professional you know, workplace experience under my belt. And I traveled. And this is where the story of my business begins, because actually I came back to Australia during the global financial crisis, which was 2009. 2000, yep. And... This is the time that nobody was hiring. Um, budgets were tight, and this was a really challenging proposition for me, trying to find a job upon coming home. And so I actually, so many people ask me, how did I start out? And the truth is my agency began because I couldn't get a real job. 
So I was out of necessity having to work for myself and it actually was a really great situation to be in at the time despite being an entrepreneur and always being, you know, scared when the next payment's going to come in. Um, what was great about the situation was that lots of companies didn't have marketing teams because they couldn't afford them, yep. but they could afford to work with someone on a small project. And that's where I was able to pick up opportunities here and there and build the business 10 years ago. And here I am today. That's fantastic. It's, um, I think I, I, I kind of grew up the same way. I guess I began um, in the entertainment business for 20 odd years and uh, then went out on my own and just sort of grew slowly and um, everything worked out really well. <laughs> I've worked for myself now, apart, I had a period where I worked for Kerry Packer and a period where I worked for Rupert Murdoch, but um, apart from that, I've always been a an entrepreneur and it is by far the best way to um, satisfy your needs and you know have some flexibility in your life so exactly and yeah I, I do agree that that is something that um, is often lost along the way um, usually people who are entrepreneurs have that desire to travel to do things on their own terms but what ends up happening is you run a business that ends up controlling you and um, so the past few years I have really focused on trying to bring that back into my life yeah, and it, it, you're right, it isn't easy, and particularly when you an initially start because you're always trying to pay the rent and eat. Yeah. <laughs> so you've enjoyed pretty impressive growth from one person to 15 people today. Um, so you're you. one of the few exceptions to the 98% failure rate. What have been the major contributors to your growth? Oh, that's a... That's a good question. I think there are um, there are there are many um, areas that I've tried to be across as a business owner. Probably um, one of the standout reasons for why I think the business has grown is that my point of difference is um, to be able to articulate what we can do in the technology space. Right. So. You know, you think of content, you think of copywriting, you think of marketing, that's great. But um, something that I've, that, that was a really big issue for me when I first started out is that in 2009, hang on a minute, I'm going to have to do maths. I think 2009, I was <laughs> 25 or 26, 26 years old. And it's quite challenging for a young female to try and um, get taken seriously in a boardroom. So um, when I thought to myself, what's my point of difference? I wanted to be able to separate myself from journalists who have a lot of really great experience or marketing professionals who've got years under their belt. Yes. So it was, I, I really centered around technology. So being able to understand developments, the understanding of how technical things work around website development, for example, um, I think always pushing the boundaries and continually learning and be relentlessly curious mm. and instilling that kind of um, mentality to the team as well, everybody that I hire, is what, you know, what people come to us for. They know that we've always got knowledge that they don't because we're always out in events and reading the news. Well, things have changed so quickly. Um, I was talking to a fellow this morning who um, is a professor of marketing at Northwestern University and he, his, um, his title is the father of marketing. I mean, the guy is a legend. He's got 55 books and he, unbelievable. And he was saying that, you know, while marketing principles haven't changed much, the um, technology has just happened so quickly and so few traditional marketers and PR people have any clue about modern te new technology. And so if you've got a technology bent and you're a good um, copywriter, content writer, then um, the time's perfect, isn't it? Yeah, it is, exactly. So being able to use my younger age as an advantage um, actually has really helped. Yeah. Um, being able to look at um, 
look at projects in a different light from a website development and coding perspective and user experience and customer experience and e-commerce experience, bringing all of that to the table has been, you know, a real godsend um, and gives us a competitive edge over what somebody who's been working as a really successful journalist may, you know, be able to bring to the table in comparison. I think also that um, people in your age group are much more aware of um, social issues and the need for corporations and businesses to be seen to be giving back and to be and and sharing the um, um, philosophies and of their of their client of your your customer and that's something that older practitioners haven't quite wrapped their mind around yet i definitely agree with you there um a lot of people have asked me in the past what's your marketing strategy how have you gotten clients what do you do when you advertise and Um, In fact, in preparation for my um, expansion into Austin the other day, I had somebody ask me, oh, what, you know, what marketing assets have you put together um, to take over with you? And I was just like, what? (laughs) Um, And the reason why is because um, I've naturally gravitated to um, just getting out and meeting people and telling them about my vision and what makes me tick as a professional as well as on a personal level. Um, and people really support that. And it's also a fantastic way to build team culture. So being really clear and co-creating those values that you all hold as a team and then articulating them is what um, gets people's attention. So we do actually have a lot of clients come to us, um, you know, potential leads, I mean, before they turn into clients and they say, look, I really align with your values and I believe, um, you know, you're a great cultural fit for us and that's why we want to work with you. So that is definitely something that we feel we do quite well. Um, Of course, we could always do it better, um, but that's um, an advantage we have over some more traditional companies that don't necessarily articulate what they stand for um, as much when they're trying to reach out and market themselves. Yeah, the question about collateral is really interesting because in in the areas that I mix in, I'm a a marketer, but I'm also more of an entrepreneur that gets involved in a whole range of things. And um, we don't have any collateral. I mean, we don't... (laughs) It's all word of mouth and face to face, and uh, you know, there's no. Can I have a brochure? No, don't have them. Can I have? Would, <laughs> yes. Give me a letterhead with your number. No, sorry, don't have any of them either. We don't do that, and um, I think that's more and more people are like that. It, it's, and uh, I'm on the board of a um, influencer company, and uh, it's all. Word of mouth. It's all going and speaking to people, addressing uh, chambers of commerce and uh, sorry, you know chambers of commerce and 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 one on one business attraction and word of mouth. And you don't need all the rest of this stuff. Um. So content's the key to success today. Everything's about content. Doesn't matter what industry you're in. So is content and communications as a category enjoying rapid growth? In general, um, you know, you're obviously outperforming the segment, but is it a a growth segment overall? Absolutely. Um, You know, of course, it it might sound like I'm being a bit biased, but I can definitely tell you from my own experience that 10 years ago, nobody knew what a copywriter was. Um, And when you say you work in content, it seems very nebulous um, and obscure. But... um, Over time, there's been a huge shift over the last few years in people not just investing dollars into a website design or a sexy brochure. They are actually now investing time and money into the content that goes on that. And it was quite a hard sell when I first started out being able to say, well, you know, you're investing you know, a lot of money into looking good, don't you want it to sound good and don't you want it to work and don't you want the content to accurately reflect your business? So it's it's not that, 
that is not a challenge anymore. People understand the value of it. The yeah. challenge is still always getting the marketing dollars to be able to spend it on that um, part of the project instead of the whole lot. Yep. But there are definitely tons more roles that are related to content now that are being advertised because a lot of teams are recognizing how important it is and they're bringing resources internally. So ironically, um, despite the fact that there has been a lot of growth and my business has been able to take advantage of that growth, um, there are a lot more jobs being taken internally, which makes the competitive landscape quite challenging. So once yep. again, we're always having to get out there and learn what's new that the people who work client side don't know. Yeah. yeah. So do you have a particular niche you focus on? You, you mentioned technology before. Is is that a particular direction that you, you work in or you work across multiple yes. disciplines? Probably we work across multiple industries. However, we're most well known for working in the education and finance and government sectors. Right. Typically, they are um, those types of projects, those types of clients. They have a lot of complex information that needs to be distilled into plain English and that's easy for people to understand. So, therefore, mm-hmm. there's quite a lot of work. Um, however, just to um, expand on that, we actually have a niche for emerging technology. And what that means is that we're working on a lot of projects that relate to um, chatbot technology yep. and voice. So, you know, um, Alexa, Google Home, for example. And so what's really exciting is that um, as people are interacting with this um, type of technology, there's a whole new uh, skill set out there called conversation design yep and um it's about that human robot interaction and how a piece of technology can converse with a human being to help complete a task hmm. so we actually yes it's, this interview is very timely because yesterday was probably one of the most exciting um days of our agency's career we had a project launch in Federation Square, which you would know is a huge tourist hotspot in the city. Know it well. Had many um, a beer in Federation <laughs> Square. <laughs> yes, it's a beautiful spot right in the heart of the city along the Yarra River. And a brand new store opened up and it's um, run by Niska Robotics. And it's actually an ice cream store. But what's special about this ice cream store is that there are no humans behind the counter. It's purely humanoid robots that run yep. the store. Yep. And we and it's fantastic to go check out. I highly recommend it. Um, you can go buy ice cream from Pepper the Humanoid Robot, which is developed by SoftBank Technology in Japan. Mm-hmm. But um, we were involved in this project and we actually designed the conversation that Pepper would have. So Pepper, as you can, um, for those who are, uh, are familiar with humanoid robots, Pepper has yep. um, facial recognition and voice recognition. Um, so to be able to... Uh, write the scripts for the programmers around what is said when Pepper hears something in particular and how we can design those conversations to help through all the way from ordering to collecting that order, mm. as well as making sure that no one conversation is ever the same. So keeping those variations as well. It was a really rewarding project and that's the kind of work that we feel um, there's so much potential in the future. Well, that'll be good because there's, there's actually quite a bit of that across this country. Um, so you'll fit right in here. So do you, um, do you spend your time working on the business or working in the business? Uh, <laughs> my... My split between working in and on the business has definitely changed over the years. The longer I spend in the business, the more I'm working on it, not in it, which is fantastic. Um, However, the challenges never get easier. So (laughs) every time you think you've nailed something, something else will come up that you feel like you need to re-engineer. Um, I'm very much not on the tools anymore. Um, I was writing a lot of content when I first started. Um, I was doing a lot of the briefing with the teams, um, teaching them. Now I'm still involved, um, but very much at initial stage, scoping a project and putting together a bit of a strategy or the right approach for it and making sure that we're solving the problem um, before delegating to the team. So do you you conduct the day-to-day running of the business? Um, apart from working in the business, do you? Um, um, no, I don't. 
So um, currently, um, most of my time is spent getting out there, talking to people, building our profile, um, going to sales meetings, um, having coffees with people in our network to maintain those relationships um, and a lot of thought leadership. So, you know, talking about the kind of work that we do, um, once again, to, to build the awareness of um, our capabilities as an agency. So you, why, did, why did you choose the US to expand rather than take on Sydney or Brisbane or something? It comes down to the Australian market versus the US market. So um, I feel that in the US, although it is due to the population and the number of opportunities, it is so competitive. Um, however, there are just so many more options and so many more people to talk to. And um, as I've said before, I'm just relentlessly curious to learn and always get one step ahead. And I know that it's a bit of a negative cliche, unfortunately, but Australia is a few years behind. And I've been going to the States every couple of years to learn as much as I can. I, you know, do visits um, to contacts that I have in big tech companies, Google, Facebook. Um, I went to South by Southwest this year. Um, there's always things to learn that I can bring back to the Australian market that people are like, wow, that's really interesting. Let's start getting ready for that. Right. So being able to have that, once again, um, that knowledge that I can share back with my clients is something that I feel um, moving to the US and, and helping uh, to share that knowledge will, will achieve. The attitude here in the US against Australia is incredible people here are really can do they they want to help you they're much more ambitious they're much more driven um i find doing business in australia very frustrating um but over here people really do and they know their stuff over here you know people there's a lot of really good people here so why'd you pick austin i mean it's a great pick it's a fantastic place so why did, why did you pick austin <laughs> Um, I've chosen Austin due to so many factors, but probably the top few factors is the cost of living. Yeah. Um, California is so expensive, so is New York. Um, the other uh, cities kind of on my short list were New York, San Francisco. San Francisco um, is even more LA. expensive. <laughs> yeah. LA, Seattle. Um, so there were a few options bounced around, but Austin, due to the cost of cost of living um also the startup um culture that is there is incredible and you know purely for the fact that it's america's fastest growing city and 170 people move there a day it's it's already got this um openness to making new connections that i feel even though americans are always so friendly and they're always out there to meet new people I think that it's just going to be really easy to build connections in Austin and grow from there. It's you a great launch pad for that reason. And also, um, yeah, just not only is it a lower um, cost to, you know, for, for housing, but also cost to run a business. So taxation is a huge factor and Texas has zero income tax for the state. So that was another factor. Yeah, although, you know, you should think about Los Angeles because um, in the last three or four years this has gone from being um not really a technology hub to now number two in the world after silicon valley um from santa monica all the way through way past um venice beach it's just wall-to-wall -wall startups and incubators and um then on the because the entertainment business is here um you know all your film companies are here all your entertainment companies are here and uh, all of the tech companies, doesn't matter whether it's Amazon or Apple or Google or whoever it is, they're all getting into television, film and related technologies and they're all here. So I think the, the growth of technology in this town is, I think, surpasses most, almost anywhere else in the world. So you should think and about it. And that really excites me. Yeah, you, sh you should have There's opportunities all over America, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so how do you remove yourself from the day-to-day -day operations? You you started off with one person, and so you bring in one person, and then you train them to be you? 
Yes, so this is a really interesting question and something that people ask me about all of the time because um, referring back to what you said around how much am I on the business versus in the business, um, it's really hard (laughs) and it's not something that happens overnight. You really need to plan for it. I might backtrack and tell you some context, which is actually um, earlier this year, I took three months off. And for a business owner to take three months off, even like a month off is quite extraordinary. True. And everybody asks me how I did it. They think, oh, did you just travel and, you know, work three months somewhere else um, as a digital nomad with my laptop? And the answer is no, I actually took three months off and I didn't do any work. And that astounds people. And what I tell them is that it took about a year of preparation. I'd made the decision. I was super burnt out. And I'd made the decision like one, you know, stressful day on my yoga mat. And I was like, nope, I'm going to make this happen. So with conviction, if you make a decision, you just get to planning stage. And then um, I thought to myself, how can I replicate what I do? And unfortunately, for somebody who runs a business, they are probably the most experienced in the team. And so to be able to hire someone who can have their, like who who has a duplicate set of skills is going to be a huge investment, not only in hiring, but also the salary. And that's going to be very financially dangerous for the business. Um, So the way I decided to tackle it was to actually look at my existing team and think, how can I make the most of it? And I actually decided to write down a position description of all the things that I do, which a lot of business owners don't have because they wear every single hat. Yes. And then I started to segregate my position description and I thought to myself, I'm going to split this into four. And so what ended up happening was that I was able to internally promote my team members and give them a pay rise and more accountability and an opportunity to learn and develop and grow. And then I put in almost a year's worth of upskilling with them over time to prepare for my time away. So that way it was not a huge investment in hiring somebody. And also, you know, it it removes the element of putting all eggs in one basket for one person who might turn out to be like not the person that you thought they might be when you hired them. Or they might leave. (laughs) Exactly. And if they leave, you're screwed. So by investing in those who you know have loyalty to your team, it's a much safer bet. You can redirect those funds into giving them a pay rise and redirect your time into making sure that they're feeling ready for that challenge. So if you've got four people dividing up the tasks, how do you ensure that someone doesn't end up killing somebody else? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, you write quite defined. You write quite defined position descriptions for them. So you know, one person might take care of the sales function. One person might take care of the operations function. Another one is the account management, the client relations function. Um, another is the quality control function. So by making sure that everybody has transparency on what everybody's accountable for they know not to step on each other's toes and how to collaborate most effectively together i think it's also really important to communicate that vision that you have not just to the new leadership team that you've built but to the entire team around the fact that this is how the team will now work moving forward and what the processes are so that everybody is on board and there's no confusion um, around, you know, who gets to do what and how something should be done. So, how did you go about upskilling team members? Did you take each of them and sort of one at a time and train them in that twenty five percent of the business? Yeah. Um, so, with that that upskilling, what did that look like? So, it was a combination of fitting in one on ones. Literally, I would take individual team members out for breakfast or um, uh, lunch during the day and I would rotate between the entire team, not just the leadership team, but the entire team as well um, to make sure that all team members felt confident in their capabilities and um, were excited about the change. They they had a space in which we could communicate any of their concerns um, and spend a bit more time with me as well. Um, but... 
being able to do regular one-on-ones with them um, not only provided the opportunity for them to um, listen to different, I guess, different opportunities to pick my brain, but also um, determine what areas they were lacking in. And so that would help us, that would help me put together a bit of a plan on who didn't know what and what we could do to help them. So just in addition to doing the one-on-ones, we would run um, several workshops internally um, with people with different... So we would kind of divvy up people into different groups into, you know, what skill sets they haven't had as much exposure to. That's great. So one-on-ones combined with internal workshops. The other thing is that we tried to um, incorporate quite a few team bonding activities that didn't impact necessarily on, you know, deadlines and the ability to do client work. But creating team bonding activities helped build that internal trust between different team members. So if I was to step away, like they aren't working in silos, it's a really close-knit team um, and that facilitates trust between the team members when I'm not around. So for the three months you were away... Did you have get any reports back from the office? Did you have somebody drive past once a week to, just to make sure they're all still there? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't want the team to feel like I was spying on them. Uh, that's actually really difficult. Um, when you are seeing them every day and you're really close to them, I felt extremely isolated when I was away and I wanted to check in on them. But you can't because you want to leave them to do their own thing and to not feel like they're being watched all the time. So um, the one thing that I did do, however, is I needed to make sure that um, I was across what was going on. However, I wasn't interfering. So what structure I put into place when I was away for three months is that every week I would do a video call with one person who was like my second in charge and that we created um, an agenda for each of those calls um, prior to me going away and so the catch up over the phone would be between 30 to 60 minutes at a time about once a week or once a fortnight depending on you know what troubleshooting needed to be done but That was very much a conversation focused on finance. Right. So what's in the pipeline? How's our sales? People, how's our team going? It was then also focused on clients, like how's our network looking? How's everyone going? And our product, so how's the business? How's how's our content? What's happening? So those four key things, finance, people, clients, and product. So when when you came back to the office... Did you yep. allow them to stay running the business or did you insert yourself back somehow? Yeah, well, that's a really good question because the three months off was very much a trial run to see what would happen if I was to step away from the business for a longer period of time, um, which is you know extremely valuable to me now because I, am, I have made that decision to expand into the US in 2020 and so hence I'm not going to be around. Um, one of the biggest mistakes that I made is that after the three months away, obviously I had a ton of intel around what worked and what didn't work so well. Um, the The mistake that I made was that I came in back as the boss and I said, okay, I'm going I'm to have to make some really hard decisions. And so from a recruitment perspective, from like picking apart all the holes, I made some tough decisions um, around process and people and... I wish I didn't. Um, I look back at that and think, okay, what I actually ended up doing was I robbed the team of the opportunity to make that decision themselves. Um, I think uh, I took ownership of, you know, I I just stormed in and took that ownership away from them. Um, But that's because... At the time, I thought, well, this is what's been going on and they haven't had the confidence necessarily to do some of the things to improve some of the gaps. And I I needed to just make those decisions. Unfortunately, that had a bit of a negative impact on the team morale. And um, I mean, since it's since been addressed and rectified, of course, but um, I probably wouldn't recommend anybody do that um, because it really does take away all of their hard work. Yeah. Okay, we're getting close to the end. So where 
Natalie, do you expect to be in two years? And then where would you like to be in five years? Both you personally and the business. I would... I would love to be able to um, actually live that vision of why I've started business in the first place. And that was um, <laughs> to paint a picture, pretty much live, you know, three months by the beach or um, three months in the, in the ski slopes and, um, you know, actually enjoy really good work-life balance um, for me. Probably um, something as a young woman um, on my mind is obviously starting a family at some point. So everything that I'm doing now to engineer the business and give other team members more accountability so I can step away is helping me achieve that. Um, as for where I think I might be professionally and personally three to five years, um, I'd like to think that we have built up a bit of a presence in the US and then I'm able to, you know, um, have this lifestyle where I can kind of move around a bit more and inspire my own team members to do the same. And it's a fantastic um, employee retention strategy because sure. the more you can inspire your team, the more that they're on board and go, yep, I want to do what they do. And um, I really advocate that so much, investing in, in your team. Absolutely. Natalie, Natalie Koo, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, to find out more about Natalie and the team at Avion Communications, just go to avion, A-V-I-O-N, communications.com.au. I guess you'll be dropping the AU shortly. Yes, we actually have... uh registered um, avion.agency for the U.S. market. So if you're looking in the U.S. for a content and communications company, Avion, what was it again? <laughs> avion.agency, and that should be going live soon. So Avion.agency, going live agency. soon. Correct. This yeah. is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 414th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. And today we're broadcasting from the beautiful remote island of Ko Samui. Kosamui, I can never get that right. In southern Thailand, we're here visiting the world's most famous art forger, Robert 
Drayson. And I'll talk more about that when I get back to the States. Now, is AI a force for good or evil? We know we've heard Elon Musk say that um, AI could be the sort of end of the world and others like um, Mark Zuckerberg thinks it's a force for good. And for New York University's AI Now Institute, small st- and small startup companies and quite a few larger ones, the objective straightforward, leverage new advances in computing, especially artificial intelligence, to disrupt industries from social networking to medical research. Now, it's in that disruption itself that the problems could lie. Many experts are working to ensure that as corporations, entrepreneurs and governments roll out new AI applications, they do so in a way that's ethically sound. I know we've we've all heard um, the stories that within about five years, AI is going to be smarter than humans and AI will be able to direct humans on what we do and the way we think. Um, AI directs all the... Um, verbal commands from everything from phones to the series, etc. this world, and they are being taught to speak by AI, so that will change the way people speak. It's um, impacting so many parts of our life now, from healthcare to criminal justice to education and hiring, and it's all happening simultaneously. AI's got Lots of success stories with positive outcomes in field from healthcare to education. But there's been unexpected pitfalls. AI software has been abused as part of disinformation campaigns, accused of perpetuating racial and socioeconomic biases and criticised for overstepping policy bounds. I mean, it's it's really a problem when you think, I was reading that within two years, You won't be able to tell the difference between fake videos of people speaking and real ones. At the moment, you can tell. But in two years, they say you're not going to be able to tell, and that's AI. So AI can shape our thoughts without really doing – without us being able to detect it or being able to know how to stop it or how to distinguish it. And to ensure the future AI is developed in our best interests, AI Now's researchers have divided the challenges into four categories, rights and liberties, labour and automation, bias and inclusion, and safety and critical infrastructure. Rights and liberties pertains to the potential for AI to infringe on our civil liberties, like facial recognition technology in public spaces. Labour and automation encompasses how workers are impacted by automated management and hiring systems like Amazon. You know, people working for Amazon in the warehouses can be fired by artificial intelligence without even coming into contact with a person. Bias and inclusion has to do with the potential for AI systems to exacerbate historical discrimination against marginalised groups. They can spread misinformation. And finally, safety and critical infrastructure looks at risks posed by incorporating AI into important systems like the energy grid. The tech world's beginning to undergo a deep transformation in recent years. There are thousands of workers who don't want to be complicit in building things that do harm and that benefit only a few and extract more and more from most of us. So there's been a significant shift and it can't be understated. So we need to have a really careful look at AI. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. And if you're always trying to be normal, you will always be boring You'll never know how amazing it can be to be different and exciting and have a great life. In the meanwhile, have a great week and continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from Kosahumi, Kosamui, 
in southern Thailand. Back in Los Angeles next week, where technology meets entertainment. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.